Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to Behind the Knife, Medical Student and Intern Survival Guide. In this podcast series, we focus on high-yield topics relevant to medical students and surgical interns. My name is Patrick Georgioff. And I'm Vahag Nikolian. And we are your hosts. We've got a great uh, super high-yield vascular surgery episode for you today. That's right. We've got some great cases that will really help you lock down on the key concepts required for managing patients with carotid stenosis, abdominal aortic aneurysms, and limb ischemia. We want to give a big thank you to Drs. Peter Henke and Nick Osborne for reviewing the content as well. So let's go ahead and get started. Patrick, uh, why don't we start with carotid stenosis? What is it and why do we care? Yeah, so carotid stenosis is narrowing of the carotid artery by atherosclerotic plaque. And the location most frequently affected by atherosclerosis is a carotid bifurcation, often with extension into the proximal internal carotid artery. So this is thought to occur because of the unique flow dynamics at the bifurcation. Uh, progression of atherosclerotic plaque at the carotid bifurcation results in luminal narrowing, and this can often be accompanied by ulceration of the plaque itself. And this process can lead to ischemic stroke or transient ischemic attack from embolization, thrombosis, or hemodynamic compromise. All right, that sounds like some bad uh, complications associated with uh, carotid stenosis. So do we screen for it? Yeah, no. Uh, screening is not recommended for asymptomatic patients because of the low prevalence of carotid stenosis, the low annual risk for stroke in patients with asymptomatic disease, and the high estimated rate of false positive results with non-invasive screening. All right, so that's right. That means that most patients who present to a vascular surgeon have undergone imaging and have been diagnosed with carotid stenosis because they were symptomatic. So how do we define symptomatic carotid stenosis? Yeah, so that's a great question. This is, this is a lot most important. Whenever you're evaluating a patient, a consult, someone in clinic, um, it's critical uh, to determine if they're symptomatic because this is also going to tell you how you're going to treat that patient. Uh, symptomatic carotid disease is defined as focal neurologic symptoms, most frequently transient ischemic attacks, or TIAs. And uh, TIAs most often present with weakness, inability to speak, or transient unilateral blindness. Uh, TIAs are often sudden in onset, they may come and go, and they are referable to the appropriate carotid distribution, meaning uh, those symptoms correlate with the side of, of, of carotid uh, stenosis. All right, so carotid stenosis is narrowing of the carotid artery by atherosclerotic plaque that can lead to transient ischemic attacks. So are you up for any cases, Patrick? Yeah, I sure am. Okay, so you're in clinic, you're evaluating a patient with carotid stenosis. He's 62 years old has coronary artery disease, status post-cabbage and drug-eluting stent placement, non-insulin-dependent diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. He was referred to you after a transient ischemic attack in which he developed temporary confusion and weakness of his left side. This prompted a carotid ultrasound, which showed right greater than left stenosis. Okay, so very, very important. This is a symptomatic patient with carotid stenosis. First, I would perform a focused history and physical exam. All right, so you do that and you learn that the patient did in fact have a TIA. This is his first episode of neurologic symptoms. On exam, you hear a brewery over his right carotid. Okay, and uh, what did uh, his ultrasound show? 
So his duplex ultrasound showed 70 to 99% stenosis of the proximal right internal carotid artery with velocities of 410 over 130 centimeters per second. The left carotid had minimal stenotic disease. I should also mention that a carotid duplex is, is what it actually is. It uses the classic black and white B-mode feature of the ultrasound in addition to Doppler to measure blood flow velocities. So how do you interpret these results? Yeah, uh, great question. So first off, you can measure the degree of stenosis of the artery using really kind of regular ultrasound imaging, also called B-mode or black and white imaging. And so when measuring stenosis, it is important to know that there are different techniques used. This is kind of confusing. So the most common approaches are based on two large randomized trials. One is called the NASA trial, one is called ECST. And interestingly, the measurements uh, from these trials are not equivalents. They use different uh, uh, techniques to get there, but uh, the prognostic data they produced are equivalent or very similar. Um, furthermore, uh, these original studies used angiography, not ultrasound, to determine risk of stroke. Uh, therefore, most vascular imaging labs don't just measure the stenosis directly with black and white imaging, but also measure the velocity of blood flowing through the stenotic segments of the artery itself. That's right. So correlations have been made between flow and percent stenosis, which allows us to use specific velocity cutoffs to guide treatment. Exactly, and this is a critical piece of information here. A peak systolic velocity of greater than 125 centimeters per second suggests a stenosis of at least 50%, while peak systolic velocity of greater than 230 centimeters per second suggests a stenosis of at least 70%. Other important values can be determined by measuring the end diastolic velocity and the internal to common carotid artery flow ratios. Okay, ratios. So so you mentioned um, two different percent stenoses, one being 50 and the other 70. Why are these numbers so important? Yeah, uh, these are extremely important. These should be kind of drilled into your head. Uh, that's because the carotid, uh, performing a carotid, ar- and a carotid endarterectomy is recommended for symptomatic patients with stenosis of greater than 50% and for asymptomatic patients with stenosis of greater than 70%. Okay, so that's a key point. A peak systolic velocity of greater than 125 centimeters per second suggests a stenosis of at least 50%, while peak systolic velocities greater than 230 centimeters per second suggests a stenosis of 70%. And more importantly, carotid endarterectomy is recommended for symptomatic patients with stenosis of greater than 50% and asymptomatic patients with stenosis greater than 70 Right, so our patient has a greater than 70% stenosis uh, based on internal carotid artery peak systolic velocities of 410 centimeters per second, which is also confirmed with black and white imaging. Okay, so with those findings, are you going to recommend surgery? Uh, I will, but only after a few criteria are met. So first, the perioperative risk of stroke or death must be less than 6%. Uh, This is determined on a surgeon or institutional basis. Second, the patient must be well enough to undergo general anesthesia. So most patients who develop carotid stenosis are not exactly the healthiest individuals. Uh, They uh, tend to have significant cardiopulmonary uh, comorbidities. So as such, they must be appropriately screened. And uh, you should really have a good understanding of the patient's functional capacity. You know, for example, can they walk up a flight of stairs? Uh, In addition, tests like EKG, echocardiography, stress testing, and pulmonary function tests may be indicated. 
And finally, carotid endarterectomy may not be the best choice for a patient with disease that extends into the skull base, which is difficult to reach via a standard open surgery, or uh, for patients who've had a history of radiation to their neck. Uh, this can make the operative field dangerous and, and scarred. Okay, so you mentioned 6% perioperative risks. How does that, why did we come up with that number and what does it mean? Yeah, so it's all about risk and benefit. So a carotid endarterectomy is typically performed as a prophylactic surgery to avoid a devastating stroke. Um, and so a perioperative risk of stroke uh, itself greater than 6%, that's too high. It's not favorable when compared with medical management alone. Okay, so what other options are available for treatment in these patients? Yeah, that includes stenting and medical management. Right, so stenting achieves similar long-term outcomes for patients with symptomatic carotid disease. However, it's important to know that the 30-day stroke and death rates is greater with stenting than with end arterectomy. For that reason, stenting is recommended only for patients too unhealthy for general anesthesia, those with disease that extends into the skull base, and those with a history of radiation to the neck. In regards to medical management, it's important to know that when most major endarterectomy trials were performed, including the NASIT and the ECST trials, the best medical therapy for carotid disease was generally considered to be antiplatelet treatment with aspirin alone. Since those trials were completed, uh, there's been much more research and it's demonstrated that newer medical regimens have emerged, including those that can reduce stroke by uh, including therapies such as statins, antiplatelet agents like Plavix, and antihypertensive agents. It's not known how contemporary medical management stacks up against surgery or stenting alone. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, those studies, again, before agents like statins and plavish were regularly used, so we don't know how medical management really adds up um, in terms of the risks of stroke. Um, you know, one of the things, uh, I think we should mention is that there are other imaging modalities um, that we didn't discuss, not just carotid duplex, uh, that can be used to assess for carotid stenosis, and these include CT angiography, MR angiography, and classic invasive angiography. Okay, so uh, why don't we go through a few different scenarios. For each of these scenarios, let's assume that patients that present are relatively healthy, have never had radiation to the neck, and that the risk of perioperative morbidity is less than 6%. Patrick, would you offer surgery to a symptomatic patient with a peak systolic velocity of 100 centimeters per second and a stenosis of 50%? Uh, no, so uh, peak systolic velocity needs to be greater than 125 centimeters per second and stenosis greater than 50% uh, for symptomatic patients. Okay. What about an asymptomatic patient with a peak systolic velocity of 200 centimeters per second and stenosis of less than 70%? Okay, no again for this patient. That's because uh, an asymptomatic patient's peak systolic velocity needs to be greater than 230 centimeters per second and a correlating stenosis of greater than 70%. All right, so one more. What about a symptomatic patient with a peak systolic velocity of 200 centimeters per second and a stenosis of 50 to 70%? 
uh, yes, this patient would be a candidate for carotid endarterectomy because this symptomatic patient has a peak systolic velocity of greater than 125 centimeters per second and a stenosis of greater than 50%. All right. So before moving on to our next case, let's cover a few high-yield items that will likely show up when you're scrubbed into the operating room. Yeah. So for medical students, interns, these are common uh, pimp questions. All right, Patrick. When performing a carotid endarterectomy, you clamp the carotid artery. What do you, how do you ensure that there's adequate cerebral blood flow without shunting every patient? Right. So we're talking about blood flow to the brain here. So that's a good question. Um, you can perform the surgery using local anesthetic only and monitor the patient's neurologic status throughout the case. You could also perform continuous transcranial Doppler monitoring of blood flow or really more commonly continuous EEG. Uh, and finally, you can also check the carotid stump pressures while you're in the OR. That's right. So a carotid stump pressure is obtained by placing a needle that is hooked up to a pressure transducer into the internal carotid artery uh, while the common and external arteries are clamped. This will allow you to assess the collateral flow from the remainder of the circle of Willis. All right. So next up, uh, what nerves might you encounter during a carotid endarterectomy and what happens if you injure them? Right, so uh, the vagus nerve is seen running parallel and adjacent to the carotid artery. Uh, if injured, uh, you take out the ipsilateral recurrent laryngeal nerve, and this results in hoarseness. Another is the hypoglossal nerve. This is seen at the superior aspect of most of your uh, neck dissections. If injured, this results in ipsilateral deviation of the tongue. And finally, the ansa cervicalis, which is a branch of the hypoglossal nerve, is commonly seen and may be ligated. Um, it, this controls three of the four infrahyoid muscles, uh, and interestingly, when ligating it, uh, it does not have any effect on strap muscle function, or none oh. that we're aware of. Okay. So, our patient goes on to have an uncomplicated carotid endarterectomy. He goes on to do well post-op and is discharged 24 hours later. Um, why don't we move on to another case scenario? This time we'll focus on abdominal aortic aneurysms. You're the resident in vascular surgery clinic. Your patient is here for surgical evaluation of a 6-centimeter AAA. How would you like to proceed? Yeah, so I'd like to start by performing a full history and physical exam. All right, so the patient's 68 years old. He has diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and CAD with a history of a cabbage. He is a current smoker and recently underwent screening abdominal ultrasound that showed a 6-centimeter infrarenal AAA. Okay. So this patient has an abdominal aortic aneurysm, uh, which is defined as an aortic diameter greater than 1.5 times normal. So in most people, this is greater than 3 centimeters. Uh, you mentioned screening. Screening um, with abdominal ultrasound is recommended for all male patients 65 to 75 years old who have ever smoked or certainly are currently smoking or have ever smoked. This patient also happens to have really all the most significant risk factors that come along with the development of uh, AAA, and that includes advanced age, uh, being male, smoking, and having hypertension. So, uh, Bahog, is this guy having any abdominal, back, or flank pain? He's not, but why do you ask? So, these symptoms are suggestive of a contained rupture or impending rupture. Okay, so no signs of this. Uh, how do you decide which asymptomatic patients you're actually going to offer surgery to? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Uh, so, we offer repair in order to avoid an aortic uh, rupture, which is a highly, highly lethal scenario. However, repair of a AAA, just like carotids, are still prophylactic surgery, and there is a balance between operative risk and that risk of rupture. 
And there are a number of things that you need to be taken into consideration before you decide to move forward with surgery. And that includes the actual risk of rupture based on size, the anatomic configuration of the aneurysm, and the patient's medical comorbidities. All right. So let's go through some of those considerations. Let's start with your uh, risk of rupture. How do you determine risk of rupture? Yeah, based on size. Uh, in general, the risk in, in general the risk of rupture is thought to exceed the risk of repair at five point five centimeters. That's right. So that bears repeating. The risk of rupture is thought to exceed the risk of repair at 5.5 centimeters. And Patrick, how was that cutoff determined? Yeah, this cutoff was determined by large randomized controlled trials looking at open repair. Uh, these include the UK SAT trial and the ADAM trial. Um, and uh, looking at endovascular repair. And those big trials were the CSER and pivotal trials. Okay. You also talked about anatomic configuration. What does that have to do with uh, sort of surgical planning? Yeah, so uh, AAAs are categorized based on their location in relation to the renal arteries. Uh, this includes an infrarenal, juxtarenal, or suprarenal uh, aneurysm. Uh, by far and away, the most common are infrarenal aneurysms. Okay, and so how do these sort of anatomic configurations impact you as a surgeon? Yeah, so if the aneurysm involves the renal arteries, um, uh, blood flow to the kidneys is compromised during repair. That makes sense. Uh, and whether you are clamping uh, the aorta above the renal arteries in an open repair or if you're stenting across the arteries uh, uh, in an endovascular repair or stenting near those arteries, uh, involvement of the renal arteries increases the risk of kidney injury and of death. All right. And are there any other anatomic considerations uh, that you sort of think about whenever managing patients with AAAs? Yeah. Yeah. So specifically for endovascular repair. So certain size criteria must be met to allow for placement of the graft itself. And so this includes the distance from the renal arteries to the beginning of your aneurysm, also called, called the neck, um, uh, also the diameter of that neck, how wide it is and the size and tortuosity of the iliac and femoral vessels uh, um, because you need to get that whole stent delivered uh, up into the aorta. Uh, and there, there are other uh, measurements considerations as well, but those are the big ones. Okay. You mentioned medical comorbidities. Uh, what role do these play in surgical management? Yeah, so if the patient has serious medical comorbidities, which a lot of vasculopathists do, uh, they may not be eligible for open repair and, in the most extreme cases, endovascular repair. So significant cardiopulmonary uh, comorbidities are common in these patients. Um, as such, a patient must be appropriately screened. Um, we talked about this for carotid patients. You want to have a good understanding of the patient's functional capacity. A great question is what, how far they can walk. Can they walk up a flight of stairs, et cetera? Uh, in addition, tests like EKG, echocardiography, stress testing, and pulmonary function tests uh, may be indicated. Now, open AAA repair is a major surgery. It's a big surgery. So uh, if they are not a well patient, then they may not be a candidate for repair. And again, this is a prophylactic surgery. Uh, so that uh, uh, you know, that's what you really have to consider what you're doing with these patients. In addition, uh, it is recommended to um, for any patient with a AAA to ultrasound, we didn't talk about this yet, but to ultrasound the femoral and popliteal arteries um, as patients with a AAA are more likely to have aneurysms elsewhere as well. And you want to know about that before you jump into a repair. 
Okay, so let's get back to our patient. Let's say this patient who is asymptomatic and has a 6 centimeter infrarenal aneurysm is a good surgical candidate. How are you going to decide between open and endovascular repair? Yeah, that's another great question. So uh, there have been multiple trials comparing open and endovascular repair, including the DREAM trial, EVAR1, and OVER. Uh, These trials demonstrated lower perioperative mortality and morbidity after EVAR but equivalent long-term mortality when compared, uh, when compared to open repair. Of note, they also showed higher re-intervention rates and greater costs associated with EVAR. That's right. So the main benefits of EVAR appear to be greatest in the short term, and thus EVAR may be the best choice for patients with a limited life expectancy and those with a high level of perioperative risk. Whether young patients with lower risks for open surgery should undergo EVAR remains somewhat controversial. Uh, surveillance of endovascular stent grafts often uh, uh, is uh, requires CT scans over an extended period of time and ex- exposes patients to greater levels of cumulative radiation, although now more people are utilizing ultrasound surveillance uh, in this setting as well. So that being said, about 80% of AAAs are repaired in the U.S. Uh, using endovascular approaches. Huh. So 80, <laughs> that's higher. So 80 to 80% now, huh? 80% of all AAAs are repaired endovascularly. That is right. So, all right. So your patient uh, goes on to have an uncomplicated endovascular repair and is discharged home on post-operative day one. However, a CT scan performed one month after surgery shows an endoleak. So, Patrick, what is an endoleak? Yeah, so an endoleak occurs when there's persistent blood flow outside the lumen of the endograft, but within the aneurysm sac. And there are five types. A type 1 endoleak results from an incompetent seal at the proximal or distal attachment sites of the graft to the aortic uh, and iliac vessels. A type 2 endoleak results from retrograde filling of the aneurysm sac by lumbar or hypogastric vessels. Type 3 endoleaks occur at the junctional components of the graft itself. Type 4 leaks are the result of graft porosity and are actually rare with the newer grafts. And finally, type 5 leaks, which are also called endotension, uh, describe persistent pressurization of the aneurysm sac without clear evidence of a cause or a leak. Very nice. So fortunately, our patient's endoleak can be treated, and he goes on to live a long life free, free of aortic rupture. So let's take a minute to cover other common complications that can occur following both open and endovascular AAA repair. Patrick, can you name a few? Sure. So there's a whole bunch, but uh, uh, some of the kind of bigger ones. You can develop lower extremity ischemia due to prolonged clamping or uh, clots or plaque being thrown distally. You can develop renal injury that can occur from renal clamping, from hypotension during the case, or from the administration of contrast. And you can develop a, a colon ischemia, especially if the inferior mesenteric artery is uh, covered uh, or not reimplanted. All right, so let's move on to the last case. All right, let's do it. All right, so this is a 68-year-old man. He has hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, and smokes two packs of cigarettes per day. He's referred to your clinic for right leg claudication that occurs in his thigh and calf after walking about 50 feet and a non-healing right toe ulcer. What else would you like to know? 
Okay, so this is a patient with uh, claudication and a non-healing wound. Uh, based on his comorbidities, this is most likely due to peripheral arterial disease, or PAD. Um, has he ever been diagnosed with uh, PADV? And if he has, has he undergone any interventions in the past? So he's actually never heard of the term and, in fact, wants to know a little more about it. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, I can tell him. So uh, <laughs> peripheral arterial disease, or PAD, is atherosclerotic disease leading to peripheral arterial obstruction. So this leads to decreased blood flow, which can cause a number of issues, uh, including, number one, claudication. So claudication is defined as reproducible muscle discomfort. Uh, This discomfort is typically cramping or burning, and it's brought on by exercise and relieved with rest. Number two, rest pain. Rest pain is the kind of more extreme variety of claudication because the muscles hurt, cramp, burn, etc., even while inactive. And number three, tissue loss. Uh, So this is typically uh, non-healing wounds and ischemic ulcers on the feet. Uh, In the most extreme cases, uh, patients present with gangrene. Uh, this may be dry gangrene, which is literally uh, a dry, mummified, black uh, toe or foot, or wet gangrene, which is literally wet. It's often real smelly, and wet gangrene is more likely to be infected. So uh, a number of issues leading uh, coming from PAD, number one, claudication, number two, rest pain, number three, tissue loss. All right. So we should also note that anatomic sites of vessel obstruction correlate with the level of claudication. For example, if the patient has butt or hip claudication, it's likely due to aortoiliac disease. Thigh claudication, it's due to common femoral stenosis. Calf claudication, due to superficial femoral or popliteal stenosis. And foot claudication is due to tibial or perineal disease. You'll notice there that pretty much the level of sort of claudication correlates to one level higher for the vascular issues. Yeah. Uh, so you may also hear the term inflow and outflow disease. Uh, inflow refers to the aorta and iliac vessels, and outflow refers to the vessels below the inguinal ligament. Um, v, for this guy, what medications is he on? So uh, you talk to him and you find out that he's on aspirin, he's on a statin, hydrochlorothiazide, lisinopril, and metformin. Okay. So are his uh, blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes under control with those meds? They are. Okay, good. So in addition to smoking cessation, medical management of peripheral vascular disease consists of tight blood pressure, lipid, and glucose control. Uh, in, in fact, and this, is, this is real important, um, the vast majority of patients with peripheral arterial disease uh, will require medical management only. Most people with PAD do not need surgery. That's a, that's a really good point. A lot of patients come to clinic and they're worried that they're going to need an amputation. And it's good to let them know that patients should participate in programs like walking programs, which can improve symptoms. They should also benefit from taking meds like salostazol or a phosphodiesterase 3 inhibitor, uh, as well as medical management with their blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes. So, Patrick, uh, what are some key points to remember when examining these patients? Yeah. Uh, so the vascular exams uh, is an important thing. Again, especially interns, medical students, you're asked to see a vascular consult or a vascular patient. You need to um, know how to examine and what to report back to your senior resident or attending. So first of all, let's take a look at the extremity. Uh, note, is there gangrene? Are there ischemic ulcers? Is the skin discolored? And also uh, another feature of peripheral arterial disease is dry shiny and uh, hairless skin it's kind of once you see it once you'll you'll notice it um, also when you feel the limb is it cold or is it warm and well perfused uh, when you uh, also want to perform a detailed neuromuscular uh, exam does the patient have normal strength do they have normal sensation throughout their lower extremities 
And of course, you got to check for pulses. So this includes femoral, don't forget femoral inflow pulses, popliteal, posterior tibial, and dorsalis pedis pulses. So if you can't pal- palpate a pulse, which is often the case in PAD patients, you can check for it using a pen Doppler. And uh, if you use the Doppler, be sure to listen closely so that you can describe the pulse, uh, describe it as mono, bi, or triphasic. A pulse that isn't triphasic is often suggestive of vascular disease. All right, so you do a great examination of this patient, and you know shiny skin on the right leg and an ischemic appearing ulcer on the right big toe. The leg from the knee down is somewhat cool to touch. However, he has normal sensation and strength. You're unable to palpate any pulses, but are able to identify a monophasic pulse in the common femoral artery, but do not find a signal in the popliteal, dorsalis pedis, or posterior tibial uh, distribution. Okay. So I would like to go ahead and get an ankle brachial index as well. So uh, this is also called an ABI, and an ABI is the ratio of the ankle systolic blood pressure divided by the brachial systolic blood pressure as determined using a blood pressure cuff and Doppler probe. So normal ABI, 0.9 to 1.3. Again, normal ABI right around 1, it's 0.9 to 1.3. Abnormal is anything less than 0.9. So claudication occurs typically uh, with an ABI of 0.4 to 0.9, rest pain between 0.2 and 0.4, and tissue loss between 0 and 0.4. All right, so your patient has an ABI of 0.3 on the right. Is there anything else you'd like to do to work this patient up? Yeah, sure. I would like to get a CT angiogram of the abdomen and pelvis with runoff. All right, that's fine. Uh, and what do you exactly mean by runoff? Yeah, that's a good question. So... Um, uh, this means that the CT scan will include the legs and feet and that the uh, it'll be timed to ensure that the leg and feet arteries are pacified with contrast. Now, uh, we're talking about this. We should probably mention that you could also go ahead with an angiogram, a formal angiogram at this time. Uh, that would allow for both diagnostic and, if appropriate, uh, um, a treatment at the time, too. Now, the decision uh, to proceed with a CT angiogram versus a formal angiogram uh, is very much surgeon and institution dependent. Okay, so you get a CT angiogram, which shows good inflow with occlusion of the distal superficial femoral and popliteal arteries. There's collateralization around the knee and reconstitution of blood flow in the leg with one vessel runoff in the foot. How would you like to treat this patient? Yeah, um, so I would uh, reference the transatlantic intersocietal consensus for the management of peripheral arterial disease, also called TASC. So the most recent TASC guideline was released in 2007, and this is called TASC-2. So these guidelines offer really highly detailed recommendations for treatment based on patient presentation and anatomy. And for the most part, revascularization is recommended for patients with severe claudication who have failed medical management and in those with rest pain and or tissue loss. All right, so what kind of options do we have to revascularize these patients? Yeah. So there are open surgical procedures and endovascular procedures. The most common open surgeries are endarterectomy um, and bypass with either vein or graft material like PTFE. The most common endovascular procedures are balloon angioplasty and stenting. Now, the decision to perform an open versus an endovascular revascularization procedure is based on the anatomy of the obstruction, the patient's symptoms and comorbidities, and surgeon preference. So it's really interesting, but there is a real lack of quality data that definitively supports one treatment modality over the other. Uh, In general, uh, endovascular procedures are associated with less morbidity, while open vascular surgery results in a more durable repair, more longer-lasting repair. 
So for this patient, I would consider a femoral artery to tibial artery bypass with autologous greater saphenous vein. Excellent. So you perform the surgery and the patient recovers without complication. That's actually a surprise. Uh, this claudication is resolved and his uh, toe ulcer heals over the next few months as well. Nice. All right. So great job, Patrick. We managed to get through three high-yield cases, including carotid stenosis, AAA, and peripheral arterial disease. Are you ready to knock out some rapid-fire questions? You better believe it, V. All right, let's do it. Uh, first question, what are the indications for carotid end arterectomy? Okay, carotid end arterectomy is recommended for symptomatic patients with stenosis of greater than 50%. And asymptomatic patients with stenosis greater than 70%. All right. Second question. What are the three nerves most prone to injury during carotid endarterectomy? And what are their associated deficits? Okay. One, the vagus nerve, injury to which results in hoarseness. Two, the hypoglossal nerve, injury to which results in ipsilateral tongue deviation. And three, the ansa cervicalis, injury to which is clinically insignificant. All right. Number three, for an abdominal aortic aneurysm, when is the risk of rupture thought to exceed the risk associated with repair? That's 5.5 centimeters. All right. Number four, what is a common complication associated with an endovascular repair of an abdominal aortic aneurysm? That'd be an endoleak, uh, which occurs when there's persistent blood flow outside the lumen of the endograft, but within the aneurysm sac. All right. Um, Last question. What test is critical when assessing a patient with peripheral arterial disease, and how do we interpret the results? Yeah, that's the ankle brachial index. Uh, normal values range from 0.9 to 1.3. All right. So it sounds like you got it, man. Great. So uh, uh, thanks for having I thought that was a, a, a great episode. Uh, before we wrap up, I want to give a shout-out to our friend Ian at the Undifferentiated Medical Student Podcast. Uh, this is a great show for medical students. Uh, the Undifferentiated Med Student is a virtual mentor for choosing a specialty and planning a career in medicine. Now, uh, Ian's goal for this podcast is to interview one physician from each of the 120-plus specialties and subspecialties listed uh, on the Careers in Medicine and ACGME websites. And he's doing this to help medical students uh, start exploring their career options early and on their own. So you can check that out on iTunes. Uh, in regards to uh, Behind the Knife, uh, until next time, uh, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.